Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind. I've been thinking a lot lately about civility. Of course, basic politeness and exercising good manners is essential. But I think civility, real civility, goes deeper. It means to choose our words carefully and thoughtfully in non-hurtful ways. It means to be respectful of how another person sees the world even when we heartily disagree. And to maintain a sense of humility, because as a wise friend of mine used to say, we could always be wrong. These are lofty goals which I practice imperfectly, of course. But that's the tone we strive for in these programs. Thank you for listening. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Additional funding for this series has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Institutes of Health, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Park Foundation. I served for three years in the United States Army. In every battle, we fought till the Battle of the Bulge from the beaches of Normandy. And I tell you, there'll never be a war without crimes. Never because warfare itself is the biggest crime of all. I am trying to create a peace ethic to replace the war ethic. And people have to stop thinking in terms of living peacefully and resolving their differences by peaceful means and not by going out and killing a bunch of people that have nothing to do with the decision. A feisty former prosecutor at the Nuremberg trials, now in his 80s, still works full-time for peace. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. The short, slight figure of Benjamin Ferenz bounds through the hallways of the United Nations, where he's a fixture at diplomatic meetings, is with the energy of someone half his age. Remarkable for his unwavering sense of purpose and sense of humor, Ben is sometimes called a peace hero who has dedicated his active life to fostering a more humane world. A renowned expert on international human rights law, his career began in the horrific scene of Nazi concentration camps, where as a young graduate of Harvard Law School, he was assigned by the U.S. Army to collect evidence for upcoming war crimes trials. The charges we have brought accuse the defendants of having committed crimes against humanity. At age 27, Ben Ferenz became chief prosecutor in one of the most notorious Nuremberg war crimes cases. It was the trial of 22 Nazi leaders who orchestrated SS extermination squads that invaded occupied villages, killing a total of more than a million innocent civilians, mostly Jews. This was the tragic fulfillment of a program of intolerance and arrogance. Vengeance is not our goal, nor do we seek merely a just retribution. We ask this court to affirm by international penal action man's right to live in peace and dignity, regardless of his race or creed. All the defendants were convicted in what was termed the biggest murder trial in history. 
Ferenz later led post-war restitution programs to provide compensation for survivors of persecution during the Nazi era. The tragedy Ben Ferenz witnessed and the historic role he was called to play as a brilliant young man permanently shaped his life. He saw firsthand both the power of evil and the power of international justice to bring perpetrators to account. It was a very defining experience. It was traumatic uh, in the sense that it has remained with me uh, ever since, and it goes back now about 60 years. Um, I had always been interested in crime prevention as a career, but uh, after experiencing and witnessing uh, the concentration camps as a liberator of those camps, I was sent in there for the purpose of trying to collect the evidence of crimes of catch the criminals. I was not a casual visitor. Uh, I was in there as fast as I could and, and, and moving around in the camp as quickly as I could. Um, after witnessing that, it became very clear to me, indelibly impressed on my mind, that there must be a better way to run this world uh, than what I had seen. And um, at an appropriate time, some years later, I gave up doing anything else and just dedicated myself completely to trying to restructure the world. What was your perception as a man in his 20s of a world that had led to the monstrosity of organized concentration camps? The perception also uh, is something which cannot be described in one word. There are various phases of it. First, I would ask myself, how is it possible that there is supposed to be a God and allows this to happen? So this shook some of my religious perceptions. And the next question was, how is it that the world allows this to happen? And what kind of people are these who engage in this type of criminality, thinking that it's not criminal? After all, the people who were engaged in this, at least my defendants, were all selected as people of high intelligence and education. These were not sadistic criminals taken from a prison somewhere. I tried to understand their thinking uh, and their absence of remorse about anything that they did in order to answer my question about what can you do about it. So these were the various phases of the, of the thought processes that went through. Uh, the answers to those questions were more complicated. I don't know what forces drive the universe, but I do know that the way it's going is not to my liking. And if I want to change it, I have to do something about it. So if it's a god, then he or she needs help. And if it's some other processes, there have got to be some changes made. And uh, I have not tried to ponder the philosophical answers to those religious and um, mystical questions. Uh, but I have come to a conclusion that if you don't like it, change it or try to change it. children having their arms and limbs hacked off in Sierra Leone, uh, 500,000 or maybe 800,000 people butchered by, with clubs and machetes in Rwanda in our lifetime a few years ago. This is not something which can be conceived of in any rational pattern. There's something wrong with the order of our society, with the way we run this planet. And so I direct my attention at that problem. What does it take? to make this planet 
more humane so that everyone can live in peace and dignity. I'm sure that can be done, uh, but it takes political will, it takes change of thinking, it takes new way of thinking, it needs new institutions. And those are the things I'm working on. The busy lobby of the UN Secretariat building in New York, where people of all colors and countries and costumes make their pilgrimage in fervent hope that humanity can break down barriers and develop more cooperation. Ben Ferenc zips through here often. He's an unpaid advisor to negotiators trying to hammer out details of an institution he's dreamed of for decades, a permanent international criminal court to safeguard human rights. It is part of his quest, expressed in a continuous stream of speeches, articles, and books, to establish a more peaceful, dignified world. I was a soldier. Uh, I entered the army as a private. Uh, and when the war ended, I was a sergeant of infantry. And they gave me five battle stars for not having been killed or wounded. Uh, I've seen war close hand, and I appreciate the sacrifices which people have to make in the military service of their country. And I wouldn't want to say anything or do anything which would denigrate uh, this great sacrifice of usually young people who are willing to give their lives if necessary for what seems to them to be a noble cause. And because of the danger itself, and because of the sacrifice of being killed and wounded, uh, and killing and wounding uh, as well, uh, this has been appreciated by society generally, and that was a glorification of war. And so you have all over the world monuments listing the names of our fallen heroes. I would, at the bottom of every one of those monuments, add an addition. Was this really necessary? Uh, and um, so people begin to think in little different terms. There is nothing glorious about war. War is hell. Um, Tell me in what ways it's hell. <laughs> to begin to tell you how war is hell, I don't know where to begin. First, you break the spine of every soldier so that he becomes a robot, ready to do his bidding. When told to go, go, no matter what's in front of him, flame, fire, whatever it is. When told to kill, kill. That's the first thing. You have to break the human spine and convert him into an animal. And by that, do you mean the human spirit? The human spirit, yes the human spirit, the independence. You're not supposed to think, was what they kept on telling me. And I would tell them, I can't help it. You're not supposed to think. You know, I was punishable offense to think. So the first thing you have to break the human spirit so that the soldier is prepared to do the bidding like any mechanical robot. This is a terrible thing for people who have spirit. They were trying to break my spirit. They never broke my spirit. I was always insubordinate in the army. That's why I was only a sergeant. At the end, they, they made me a general so, when I was doing war crimes trials. But uh, the army, I wouldn't do the stupid things like marching up and down. I said, why, there's a war on. There must be something more useful I can do. I'm a Harvard Law graduate. There must be something I can do besides just marching up and down all day. Uh, uh, that's a Roman tradition when you wanted to avoid people with throwing spears at you. If you do that today, you'll be killed by machine guns. Okay, wise guy, do the toilets and the latrines. And that's what I did. So, but the real horrors of war is, you know, I find myself living in a, in a hole in the forest that I had dug for myself. And it's raining and the rain is pouring off my helmet into a 
can of dog food that I have to eat, and there's somebody 100 miles away, 100 yards away, who's, who's I think he's trying to shoot me. He's got a gun pointed in my direction, and I'm pointing at him, and I, well, I should shoot first, you know. And then the, uh, the bodies in the crematoria, the, the dead and the dying, I, this is no place to describe the horrors of war. There's nothing more horrible than war and the killing of innocent people and the people who die with it. And they, now they call it collateral damage. They invent these horrible names as though it were just a, an automobile accident. Collateral damage is that you're murdering civilians, innocent civilians. That's what it is. And those are most of the victims of today's wars. Why? Why do we go out and kill these women and children? Because they happen to be on a bridge? And so we were bombing the bridge and we killed them? This is, to me, an inhumane way of thinking. So I can't begin to describe the horrors of war because it's indescribable, the stench, the, the horror, the, the fear, the, uh, everything that goes with it. Uh, you have to experience it. I hope you don't experience it. But the glorification of war is almost a ritual. Every political candidate will tell you we've got to be stronger. We've got to have a strong military. We have to be able to win, to fight and win wars. I don't know what winning a war means. Does that mean that you've only killed half a million people, 10 million people, 20 million people, and you've left a few standing on your side? Is that winning a war? Nobody wins in a war. Everybody loses. The only winner in war is death. Benjamin Ferenz is a dissenter against the way our world is run. And some would say, as a former prosecutor at Nuremberg, he's earned the right to register a protest. Having seen the devastation of warfare, Ferenz refuses to stand idle and accept unquestioningly a world ruled by military might. I want to protect the lives of all American soldiers, all soldiers everywhere, uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen, all the military to protect them. The best way I know is to maintain peace. And the way to maintain peace is you build the structures for peace. You take your budget, which you use for nuclear weapons, which you cannot possibly use because they're suicidal, they're genocidal, they're ecocidal, and take a small portion of that to build the new institutions that you need to maintain a peaceful world. Begin to study those institutions. You don't have to take my blueprint. I've written a blueprint for it, but you can modify it. Take any blueprint. But recognize that what the problem is not to kill as many people as you can, but to create a world order where that's not necessary and not possible, where you have disarmed world, where you have social justice, where you have a United Nations which has capacity to enforce its decisions. You have to restructure our society. So spend a little money studying those things. That would be the proper function of a Pentagon. And they never think of it. On the contrary, they think only no one can challenge us. We are the superpower. We can do whatever we please. We only do it on humanitarian reasons, even if we disregard the law. But uh, the rule of law is something that gets in the way. I am a lawman. I believe in law and order. I believe in law and order nationally, internationally, globally. In fact, this universe cannot function without law and order. You cannot fly an airplane into space. You cannot land at an airport. You cannot mail a postage stamp. You cannot mail a letter without having universal rules which will govern our behavior. So many people recognize the United Nations as a wonderful idea and nevertheless regarded as ineffectual and uh, paralyzed. Well, part of the characterization is true. The United Nations, as it was set up, was mission impossible. You set up an organization 
of states with increasing membership. You don't have any limit on the number that will come in. It has no legislative power. It has no way of financing itself. It's dependent upon handouts from its members when and if they choose to do so, even though they're legally obliged to do so. Some of the big members, as you know, the United States is the biggest deadbeat there. It has no enforcement mechanism. How do you expect an organization like that to function? And it's remarkable that they've been able to do as many good things as they have done. Because the mere fact of inviting nations to come in and talk, which is what the General Assembly is and does, uh, is itself very useful. And they have, of course, an international court of justice, which occasionally is followed. Usually it's followed, as a matter of fact, uh, when states can voluntarily submit certain disputes to the court. They do get engaged in peacekeeping operations when the nations concerned are ready to give them some of their forces to put in place, which they seldom do, um, and certainly in inadequate numbers to maintain peace. So when you look at it as a totality, I'm a great supporter of the United Nations. So you have to see it in its totality and in its historical perspective to see it as a great step forward and an inadequate one. You've described your role as one for which you're not paid. Uh, you do it uh, to your heart's content. You do it continuously. Uh, your wife thinks you're nuts for continuing it. She, she told me you're trying to save the world all on your own, uh, and she tries to uh, dissuade you from that. What is the heart of your motivation for all this work? It's very hard for me to answer that. I think there's a dibbuk in me. <laughs> a dibbuk is a sort of a devil, <laughs> something that drives you. It's a compulsion. Uh, it's a calling. It's, uh, it's not just a job. Uh, it is perhaps a uh, reaction to trauma which drives me. Are have, you conscious? of lingering effects of the trauma of having been present at those concentration camps? I try not to be because it's only destructive and uh, it's, it, uh, it's embarrassing to me, really. Uh, but certainly, um, that awareness is there. I'm very troubled by the fact that people in high places and educated people can be mass killers of thousands of children without any feeling of remorse. Something is wrong. Uh, if that's the kind of world we have. I'm very troubled by the fact that the world would stand by and watch half a million people in Rwanda butcher their neighbors, literally, and, do, and, and know it was coming and do nothing except apologize later, maybe set up a little court there to try to catch a few of the people. And even then, we don't pursue the people. Uh, this distresses me no end because it seems to me that the emperor is not only stark naked, he's stark raving mad to allow this kind of a world to exist when the means for changing it are at hand. So we are making significant progress. I don't want this to sound like gloom and doom, that the sky is falling. Uh, the sky is sagging, but we can prop it up. <laughs> and uh, uh, that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> The question confronting a peacemaker like Ben Ferenz is how to change people's hearts, how to promote a shift in attitude which will permit us to take a gentler view of the differences and conflicts that inevitably surface among human beings. You must begin when people begin to think. You must begin in the cradle uh, to teach people 
to substitute caring and sharing rather than the grabbing and stabbing with which they are raised today. Um, that's very difficult to do. It can be done through the churches, can be done through the school, it must be done at home, and um, of course through all the media which we have today, which gives us great new opportunities. Instead, they're bombarded with ads and commercials and programs that I just can't understand at all. And uh, if they don't drive you crazy, I don't know what they do. Uh, so we're not even on the track because there hasn't been an awareness of what it takes, what it needs. Uh, at an elementary school level, I would have to teach them, begin teaching them tolerance. They would teach, have to play games uh, where losing a game is no cause for jubilation uh, or it's no cause for uh, uh, despair, that it's a game uh, where everyone has certain equal entitlements, uh, where you respect each other's views even if they're different from your own. Um, and you could do that by, by games as well as by uh, preaching. Uh, that would certainly be high in my thing. And then I would show them the advantages of doing that. Uh, when I was a student, matter of fact, I, tr I was involved in that. I was interested in crime prevention. And some things we did, we had a lot of truants who uh, didn't go to school. And we set up a program at night for them and uh, they would do shop work. They would come in and they could build. Kids like to build. They would build a little ship or a little something. Whatever we had to build for them required a joint effort. And uh, we had a shortage of tools. We always had a, an excess of supplies. And they had to learn. If you wanted the hammer and you only had one and you needed two, you had to wait. And then you waited and you got the hammer. You couldn't grab it and hit the other guy in the head with it <laughs> because uh, uh, the other group would say the boat's not getting built that way. Uh, so there are games of that sort which can be played with children to teach them how to live together in a peaceful way. I'm not saying that occasionally one won't haul off and hit the other one. Sure they will. But uh, they won't reach the point, I hope, where they are like today, where whole categories of people are doomed because we vilified them, uh, even in times of peace as well as war. How about in, in your own self? Have you had to wrestle with prejudices about other groups? If you're asking me whether I am prejudiced against other groups, I would suppose that the answer to that, if we're honest, is inevitably yes, uh, because you're raised a certain way. If I'm walking down a block and I see three white boys walking behind me, uh, I don't react the same way as I see three black boys walking behind me. So we're raised that way, and there certainly is a vestige of that which remains with you uh, despite all of my rational efforts. I used to work in Harlem for the Legal Aid Society and the Bowery in New York, you know, going in and out of opium dens and the worst places because I was trying to help the people there. And I've been a commissioner of human rights in New Rochelle where I live and trying to create housing and jobs and all the rest of it. And still, Give you ask me a question about my origins and so on, and I was raised, I was a victim of prejudice. You talk about minorities. My sister was born in the same house I was born in, in a small Transylvanian village. I was born a year and a half later. She was born in Hungary. I was born in Romania. And both Hungary and Romania persecuted the Jews. So we were a persecuted minority, and my parents had to flee uh, to the United States, fortunately and uh, with no money, no education, no language, no skills. So I know what it is uh, by virtue of my own family experiences. But nevertheless, your question is a profound question. To what extent can you disassociate your own training and thinking and your milieu from the life that you find? 
And um, it takes a very strong character to be able to say, I wiped it out so it no longer exists in my mind. And I was simply uh, confessing my being human in that regard. How do you reconcile the need to break down barriers between people to promote understanding with the strong sense of ethnicity that many people define themselves by? The two are not inconsistent, but of course they are treated as though they were because they remember Kosovo. When was Kosovo? 500 years ago, 800 years ago? People adhere to their traditions and, and develop a worship of them uh, instead of trying to adapt to the realities of the world of today. And um, the ethnic and religious and uh, other group affinities which exist uh, become a basis for despising uh, the one who is different, the other. And if we demonize the other, it's very easy then to have somebody trained to push a button and say Japan no longer exists, the Japs have been wiped out, or the kooks have been wiped out, or whatever they are. And we're in the process of doing that. We take lovely young people and we train them to become robots, that they will, upon command, push a button and say, all right, this will protect my country or my religion or my group and kill everybody else when they don't bat an eyelash. So what is the failure in the understanding of someone who so strongly identifies with his or her own group that they're willing to harm people of another group? The failure, I think, is best characterized by the wording of a statement by Pope John Paul. I'm sure it's been echoed in many other places. The failure to recognize that we're all members of one human family. If we begin with that recognition that we are all members of one human family, then we would respond differently. You have a brother, you may not like what he does. You may not like where he looks. You may get into a row with him from time to time. But you don't want to go out and kill him uh, normally. Sometimes they do that too. We're not going to get perfection here. Uh, and and it's, it's foolish to strive for perfection. But basically, if we had such an awareness that all human beings, regardless of their education, their background, their color, their religion, their religious affiliation, are members of one human family, and they've got to be treated that way, and they should have equal rights to certain minimum standards. Every human being should have a right to fresh air, should have a right to clean drinking water, a minimum standard of, of medical attention, of education. It doesn't exist today, to say nothing about discrimination against women. Uh, in many societies, women, of course, are like chattel. Uh, despite, in our own constitution 200 years ago, uh, women had no right to vote. They couldn't own property. So we've had these inequities uh, as part of our tradition and our history, even in the most liberated, uh, supposedly liberated countries. But that is slowly changing. The trouble is it changes too slowly. Do you think it will require people t to relinquish some of their strong identification with their ethnic or cultural or religious background in order to get to the place where they can truly embrace someone from another background as a brother or sister? No, they don't have to relinquish anything except the, the willingness to kill the other fellow because he's different. Uh, if somebody wants to eat goulash, let him eat goulash. My son plays the bagpipes. Uh, he's not from Scotland. <laughs> um, but you can worship your tradition and respect your past, 
But you can't say, because the other fellow is different and comes from a different group, I have the right to kill him uh, or to torture him or to persecute him. Uh, so the, the diversity reinforces the interesting part of life. We're not trying to make a malted milkshake here of all human beings. Diversity is good, and uh, it should be encouraged, in fact. But just because somebody came from another neighborhood uh, or another city or another state, you don't go out and say, oh, I'm going to kill all the Texans or uh, all the Brooklynites or whatever. Uh, so it's a recognition that uh, being different does not justify inhumane and inhuman behavior. Benjamin Ferenz, a former U.S. prosecutor at the Nuremberg War Crimes Trials and now in his 80s, a full-time volunteer for peace. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with The Network Incorporated. Studio recording by Bill Wangren. Program development and support provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. That's humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN, and our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment with Benjamin Ferenz is Humankind Program number 17. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.